Has God's kingdom already come, or are we still waiting for it in some ways? People wonder this. And Scripture actually talks about how the kingdom of God is coming, uh, but in some ways it's actually already here. Jesus talks about this. And people typically refer to this as the already but the not yet kingdom. But what does this really mean, and how do we make sense of this? And what do we need to do and know while we wait for the complete establishment of God's kingdom here on the earth? In order to answer these questions, we need to understand three specific things about God's kingdom. And that's what we'll be talking about this morning. But again, welcome. This is episode number seven, all about the kingdom of God. Today, we're actually talking about the everlasting, unstoppable kingdom of God, how God's kingdom is eternal. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at how God's kingdom is present and near, but at the same time, it's coming. Uh, Then we'll look at God's kingdom being eternal and what that means, because For something to be eternal, guaranteed to never end, that must mean that it's unstoppable. And that's exactly what God's kingdom is. And you and I are a part of an unstoppable kingdom. Um, That's wonderful news. And then we'll look at, at the end, how God's kingdom is actually sought out. People search for and expect for God's kingdom. And that will be how we close this whole thing up. And then Friday in the evening, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, We're going to have our special event going through all the parables that unpack the kingdom. And so God's kingdom is present and near. Let me show you what I mean. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 actually tells us this. It says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And this is what Jesus says. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So for Jesus, the time to... uh, to be fulfilled, for it to be the right time in human history, means this. He's specifically talking about how the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's within reach. It's finally here. And Jesus is really the one through whom the kingdom of God comes. He is the substance of God's kingdom. He is the way into God's kingdom. He is everything that the kingdom of God is about and pointing to. And so he can say that you should repent and believe in the gospel. And I really want you to think about this. Mark wants us to know that the very first words out of Jesus' mouth to start his public ministry is this, repent, believe in the gospel. And you can't have either of those ideas without the other. Those two ideas go together. To repent, to change one's mind, is to believe in the gospel. And to believe is to change one's mind. And to turn, that includes repenting from sin and changing your mind about really everything the gospel tells us. Uh, We need to change our mind about sin, our own, you know, sense of righteousness and morality and and God and and his kingdom and how to be saved and Jesus and the resurrection and his death. All these things are presented in the gospel. And Romans does a fantastic job of, of laying out the gospel for us. But I really want you to think about this. The way that Jesus starts his ministry from from Mark's vantage point, the way he wants you to understand he started it is that Jesus comes saying, the kingdom of heaven is here, the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled. In other words, everything that human history has been waiting for, everything that creation has been waiting for, packaged in Jesus, the Messiah, God come down in the flesh, the eternal word, you know, living among humanity, he's here, that means the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within reach. Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 will say something very similar. And we've already established that you don't have the kingdom without Jesus the King. Matthew 3, 2 says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is John the Baptist actually preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And John is preaching, Hey, repent, change your mind, turn back to the living God, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's something about if the kingdom is here, there's an expectation that people should have, but also there's a responsibility. There's an ad, there's a call to action. If the kingdom of heaven is here, then there's something you should do. Something you should do. It's called repent and believe. Now, what I'm going to do is we're going to go through a lot of scriptures that essentially say the same thing. And this isn't just to, to load you up with all the evidence that God's kingdom is present and it's near, but it's, all, it's not yet. But it's also to show you that each time we see the same occurrence of this idea, it's surrounded by, you know... Uh, different ideas, and it's highlighting different aspects. Matthew 4, 17, and this is Jesus um, beginning his ministry, 
John gets arrested. He, you know, Jesus withdraws to Galilee and he leaves Nazareth, if I can talk, and he lives in Capernaum, Capernaum, however you say that, and the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, Naphtali, and then Isaiah actually prophesied of this, and it talks about how there are people dwelling in darkness and they've seen a great light. Um, This might be talking about, you know, uh, mainly it's spiritual darkness. People are sitting in spiritual darkness, living in that all their life, and they've seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus begins to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand or near or within reach. It's among you. He'll say all these different ways of saying, hey, the kingdom of God is here. There's no more waiting uh, when it comes to... um, you know, the kingdom of heaven being made available to people and, and being put on a silver platter in front of people, you don't have to wait for that anymore. It's in Jesus. He is the substance of the kingdom. And he brings the kingdom and he grants you access to his kingdom. And so we can say that the kingdom of heaven being near, once again, Jesus calls people to repent, but it relates to light shining on those in darkness. And the gospel is preached. So think about that. We have, we have all these ideas. When we think about the kingdom of heaven being among us, uh, possibly we all think of different things. You know, for some people, they think signs and wonders and miracles and, and all the miraculous supernatural things God does in the world and power and authority and casting out demons. And that does have a huge role to play in the kingdom of heaven being among us. Absolutely. But also, think about this, the light of Christ the light of God from heaven shining into the dark world and reaching into the darkness that people are sitting in. And that being the gospel preached, that is the kingdom of heaven being among us. It's proclaiming the good news. When you would, you know, uh, when, you know, Israel would experience victory over an enemy, there would be good news that would be brought back to the to the communities and the cities and Israel would hear of this good news. Someone would come with a message saying Israel's won. God has given us victory. That's what's happening here is there's good news from heaven. And Jesus is not just proclaiming a message. He is the message of the kingdom. Luke 9.27, he tells people, uh, who is he talking to? Talking to his disciples here. And he says, if anyone wants to come after me, you know, this is where we get the famous deny yourself, take up your cross daily. Who cares if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? What does it matter? Right. And he goes, look, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He's telling people who are right in front of him. Some of you won't physically die. Not talking about spiritual death, physically die until you actually see the kingdom of God. In other words, there is something to be experienced with the senses when it comes to the kingdom of God. There's some sense of I can see and perceive what is happening and what the kingdom of God is, how the kingdom of God is invading this world. That can be perceived by the senses. And he's saying, some of you will actually see the kingdom of God. Which means the kingdom of God at this point in Jesus's ministry in Luke chapter 10 or Luke 9, it is among them in Christ in the proclamation of the gospel, in the signs and miracles and wonders, in prophecy being fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is among these people in Christ, for sure, and in the preaching and all that stuff. But also there's there's a dimension to that, which is that they don't yet see the kingdom in a, in a way that they will, which seems to be post-resurrection and ascension. <clears throat> Luke chapter 10, 9 through 11 says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, um, I just read that, There we go. He calls people. He's telling his disciples. I don't think this is the 72. It is the 72. Okay. Jesus appoints 72 of his followers. And he goes, look, go into every town. And what they're essentially doing is they're preparing the way for Jesus. They're getting people ready for his arrival to come and share the good news of the kingdom. Right? So he was an itinerant preacher traveling from town to town. And you have the disciples, 72 of them being sent into the cities Jesus intends to go into. And he says, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Here's what you're to do. I didn't mean to rhyme, but verse nine, it says, here's what you're supposed to do. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And notice how healing the sick 
here has to do with the kingdom of God being near to people, within reach, right in front of them. <clears throat> Something they can actually reach out for and experience. The kingdom of God is among you. How? In the form of the disciples healing people by the power of God. And he says, whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into its streets, right? And say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. It's to their shame. Nevertheless, know this. The kingdom of God has indeed come near. In other words, for the kingdom of God to come near to people doesn't mean they receive the king in his kingdom. It doesn't mean they approve of the message about this king. That means they have proximity to this kingdom. They have an experience with, you know, this kingdom and the agents of this kingdom. You're going to hear me say kingdom a lot because that's whole series. And it's, it's to say, look, People are experiencing a dimension of, they're having an opportunity to be a part of this kingdom and believe the news about this king. Not everyone will, though. There are some that won't. And Jesus tells his disciples, tell those people the kingdom of God has indeed come near. It's not that it wasn't available. It's not that you didn't get to experience it. It's not that you had no proximity to God's kingdom. It was right in front of you within reach. And some of you are going to reject it. Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, here's what he answers them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. Be, you know, behold, the kingdom of God is actually in the midst of you. So they're anticipating something that Jesus is saying. That's not how it's going to happen. They have an idea, the Pharisees, they have an idea of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come. They seem to define the kingdom of God uh, as something that only benefits Israel. They're only thinking national Israel, us being in power and authority over the other nations, restoring our position in the earth. And we'll see this in even in the beginning of Acts when the apostles go, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And they're still missing it. They're still missing it. But their idea of what the kingdom of God looks like is this. It's about Israel. It's about power, authority, national, you know, a national entity. And it's about something we'll be able to see and perceive it. And it's going to be awesome. And Jesus is going, it's actually right in front of you and you're missing it. What a bummer. And then what's interesting about this account of Jesus's, um, what he says here is he's going to begin to tell the disciples, um, about what's going to happen um, in this generation and what it's going to be like and how it's going to be when really Jesus comes back on the day he's revealed. Um, and so you're going to see like he's going to talk about how, um, well, the dead essentially are going to be taken, the wicked, the evil, the sinners, they're, they're going to be taken. Um, but the ones who will be left are those who are a part of this kingdom. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. We often think of um, the kingdom of heaven as something to go to. Like when we die, we're zapped up to heaven and we're going to stay there forever and sing songs. And that seems to be just a temporary place where people of God will be until the kingdom of God is realized on the earth and we have new creation. We have a new heavens and a new earth. Um where Jesus rules with his people. That's what's really coming. And Jesus is actually going to talk about that and really correct their their idea of what the future holds for Israel because they're still missing it. Luke chapter 21, and I've done videos on Luke 17. You can go check that out. Very eschatology-centered. Luke 21, 31, it says, So also, when you see these things taking place... Um, you know the kingdom of God is near. Luke 21 is, from what I understand, and you can go and watch my videos on this, Luke 21 mainly is addressing what does happen um, through the Roman armies in AD 70 and what leads up to that, the Jewish wars. That's what's mainly in mind here, as far as I've studied, is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple through Rome. And Jesus is saying, look, when you see these things, take place, the kingdom of God, you can know that it's near. 
So there is some dimension of um, the kingdom of God is present. It is near. It is among you. It is within reach. But there's also some aspects of the kingdom that have not yet been fully realized or uh, come into the world. And that's what we get to look at now is how the kingdom of God is is coming. 2 Timothy 4.1 says this. It's an interesting verse and you don't typically read it as telling us about God's kingdom coming, but, but read what Paul says to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead. So, so Paul here has judgment in mind, Jesus judging the living and the dead, okay? And by his appearing in his kingdom, he charges Timothy in the presence of God and of Jesus by these things, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. In other words, in the mind of Paul, as he's trying to get Timothy to be serious about preaching the word and, and really guiding this young disciple of his and you know leaving him some, some words of encouragement, he wants to remind Timothy that it, it's all about the presence of God. Really, we stand before him. We give an account to him. He's the one that judges us. Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. And that judgment seems to be connected to the appearing and the kingdom of Jesus coming. In other words, the kingdom of heaven being fully realized on the new earth has to do with Jesus coming back. And you and I go, duh, but hold on. It seems as though when Jesus appears, that is going to mark his kingdom really fully coming into the world and however that works itself out logistically I don't care as much as the fact that I don't care as much about those things as as I do about the fact that Jesus is coming back and with him comes this kingdom fully manifest completely realized in God's world and at that point it will be new creation how Jesus does that what duration of time we have to wait in between his arrival and when that's not really what I'm trying to get at. Just the point is, when he comes, his kingdom fully comes with him. Verse 18 says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. When Jesus tells the thief on the cross, Today you'll be with me in paradise. In paradise. That actually happened. Like the, the criminal that was crucified with Christ that ended up believing in Jesus when he died and Jesus did what he needed to do to make way for us to go with him, that thief did end up in paradise. And Paul sees the end of, well, he sees his future as I'm going to be safely brought into the heavenly kingdom of God. And you and I go, aren't we already citizens of God's kingdom? Haven't we already established that? Aren't we technically in the kingdom of God? Absolutely. Paul is not denying the fact that we're citizens, we're children, we're co-heirs with Christ, we're a part of this kingdom already. But he is saying, I haven't yet been fully brought into that heavenly kingdom. That is still something to be done in the future. Whether he's talking about the way God will welcome him uh, into heaven when he dies, or whether Paul has in mind something else that will happen post-resurrection for all the saints, either way, the two ideas come together. It is where God is. It is the heavenly kingdom of God. And Paul's saying, one day, I'm going to be brought safely into that. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 tells us, Jesus says, hey, when you pray, he says, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, sacred be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Part of what it means for Jesus' kingdom to come is this. His will is being done just as it is in heaven, but instead it's on earth through his people, through his ch- through the children of God that yield to the leading of the spirit and walk according to the ways and the word of God. Through that obedience and through the will of God being done, the kingdom actually comes. But there is still a sense in which us as believers, we're praying and longing for God's kingdom to be fully realized here um, in the created world. We're longing for that. 
but it's a daily. You have to understand, this is why Jesus uses the parable of the mustard seed to explain the kingdom. It is a slow, progressive thing where the kingdom of God slowly takes over. And there's a lot of different views about how God's kingdom takes over. There's some people who believe that believers need to take over every sphere of influence in the world. You know, marketing, commerce, technology, finances, um, you know, all the different mountains that we need to climb and ascend and conquer for God. And then through that, the kingdom of God comes. There's another view that says, well, the kingdom of God coming has nothing to do with me taking over anything. It's just every day I faithfully follow God, what he does with me, as long as I follow his will, his kingdom is progressively advancing through my life. So the kingdom of God advances where his people obey his, his ways and his word. It's the small acts of obedience you and I are called to as the children of God that really advance the kingdom and move it forward. But Jesus coming back and the kingdom being fully realized, I don't think that hinges on us, uh, I don't know, filling up our obedience to a certain level. And it's like, now God's coming because we did X, Y, and Z. I think God knows what will happen and all that will lead up to that. But I don't think the return of Jesus depends on any efforts or any exertion on our end. It's just God has ordained when his son is coming. And maybe it's a factor of, okay, they've done really what they can do and the world is where it needs to be and time is what it, you know, it's the right time for Jesus to come. But be thinking mainly about how the kingdom of God comes, the accumulation of all the children of God across the planet, faithfully following God each day. When you really collect all those different moments and pile them together, you have a huge advancement of God's kingdom on a daily basis. And God's kingdom advances, takes territory, um, brings more citizens into the kingdom through, again, these faithful acts of obedience um, that we choose to do. So there is a sense in which God's kingdom is already, but it's not fully realized. It's not fully manifest. That comes with the appearing of Christ. And to what degree that um, includes our obedience as the church I can't really say, and I don't think it's on us to really know, because then it's like, we're, we're super close, guys, push to the end, we have about 13% more obedience as the church, and then he'll come, then it gets weird, and you start playing the numbers game, and you start predicting, you know, in a year and a half, he's coming, get ready, and we've seen how that plays out, we've seen so many people make the predictions, it's because we, we almost assign all these wrong metrics for how to measure how close we are to the kingdom of God. And then we form a picture that looks nothing like what God is doing. And then we make a conclusion based off that false picture and go, based on this, he should be coming in about six months. And I'm not saying you can't know the general season, but to make a prediction as if um, you have the secret knowledge no one else does is kind of wild. It's a kind of wild claim. The third thing you need to know, or technically second, and this is more of me just bringing the series down um, to a close. But not only is the kingdom of God already and not yet, so we're living it out while anticipating the fullness of it, but it's also the kingdom of God is eternal and unstoppable. Now, this is where we're going to look at quite a few passages that essentially say the same thing. Bear with me. A lot of them are found in Daniel. And you wonder why a, a bulk of these, the bulk of these passages are found in Daniel. Daniel is really about the human kingdoms of the world versus the kingdom of God. And it's not necessarily Israel versus the world. <laughs> it's the kingdom of heaven versus the human kingdoms. Daniel 2, 44 through 45. Um, this is Daniel interpreting the vision of Nebuchadnezzar or the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, all the kingdoms that are currently established when God's kingdom fully comes from heaven at the return of Jesus. Those kingdoms will be broken in pieces. 
And the kingdom of God, the kingdom, indestructible kingdom, will actually bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Notice the emphasis on God's kingdom never being destroyed, never having to be left to another, right? Standing forever. And Daniel goes, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, all the human empires that come before uh, the kingdom of God fully realized on the earth, all those kingdoms are shattered. Silver and the gold, he says, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And the dream is certain and its interpretation is true. The way Daniel communicates this coming kingdom of God, which is represented by a stone that comes from heaven, is he talks about how it's unstoppable and it stands forever. It's eternal. Daniel 4.3, uh, Daniel ends up praising God, or this is Nebuchadnezzar rather. King Nebuchadnezzar says this to all the peoples, languages, and nations on the earth. He says, peace be to you. It has seemed good to me to show how the signs and wonders the Most High, to show how uh, the signs and wonders God has done for me. And then Nebuchadnezzar just kind of breaks out in somewhat of worship. How great are his signs? How mighty are his wonders? You know, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom is everlasting. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Notice again, this time it's Nebuchadnezzar, the emphasis on God's kingdom is just different. (laughs) It's different. Every other human kingdom that's been established, every empire that's come and gone and will be established in the future, they all eventually fade. But his kingdom is different. And I know you and I, like we, we know this. Intellectually, we understand that. That God's kingdom never ends. But really think about that. We are brought up in a culture and where all we know are things that start and things that stop. People are born, people die. Governments come, governments go. Nations come, nations go. Empires arise and empires fall. Kings ascend the throne and kings get knocked off the throne, right? We don't, we, it's really hard for us to conceive of something um, absolutely has no end to it no end ever (laughs) something that's eternal and everlasting and once it's set up there's no tearing it down and there's there's no possibility of it um ever not existing that's such a hard concept for us to grasp but hopefully with the next few passages it'll just make i don't know just this really high and lofty thought we'll be able to bring it down to our level and just understand it a little more This is Nebuchadnezzar after he was restored from his animal-like condition. My guy went pure animal. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. And he goes, you know, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's how this chapter started. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? As if God gets corrected. Here we see what it means for God's kingdom to be everlasting and endure from generation to generation and never, ever, ever come to an end. Number one, it means it's unstoppable. Number two, Part of that involves God ruling sovereignly over all things and doing everything perfectly, doing everything good, not just good, but that's just a word that, you know, in the Hebrew mind would have captured this idea of, ah, that's perfect. So God, everything he does in heaven, on the earth, he's unstoppable. He's sovereign. He's perfect in all his decisions and all his judgments. He is wise, and you can't improve his decisions. You can't make a better or, or counsel God. It's not just that he has all power. It's not just that he has all dominion and rule. It's that everything he does is wise, and it's the best decision. From generation to generation, that's the king 
who rules over this eternal kingdom we're a part of. Daniel 6.26 it says, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. This is uh, Darius. Right after uh, Daniel escapes the lion's den. And then we always try to metaphorically apply it to the audience. Are you in a lion's den? Well, King Darius writes to all the people he's in charge of. And he goes, peace be multiplied to you, just like Nebuchadnezzar. I make a decree. That in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. Because that is the indestructible rock that falls from heaven to destroy every other human kingdom that's in rebellion. God's kingdom takes over. And his dominion shall be to the end. To the absolute end. There is no um, time where God's kingdom will be destroyed or cease. His kingdom is forever. And this is really hard. Uh, even as I'm, I'm saying this, I'm processing it real time, thinking, man, everything in this world is fading, temporary, doesn't last. It can be stolen. It can be lost. It can be destroyed. But what God has given us, what we're a part of, it can't be destroyed. This is why Jesus says, don't store up treasures for yourselves here on earth. People can steal. People can take it. It can get destroyed. Store up things in heaven that no one can take, that can't be lost, that can't be destroyed. Because the things of God's kingdom endures forever. So notice throughout Daniel, different kings and rulers come to the realization he is the ultimate king. He's in charge of everything. His kingdom is on another level. It's on another level. Can't be compared to any human kingdom. There might be some ways to parallel it, but he, in whatever ways we try and parallel God's kingdom to human kingdoms, his is just superior. God's kingdom is way better. And that ends up being the kingdom we're a part of. Isaiah 9-7 talks about Jesus. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace... There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice how there is a government that Jesus holds up. It's on his shoulders. And the peace that Jesus brings, that his kingdom brings, the peace that exists in the kingdom of God, it's not just that there's no end to the kingdom. God's in charge, we're all slaves. It's the, the eternal bliss and joy and peace that comes from being a part of this heavenly kingdom. Because the kingdom never ends, neither do those things. Neither do we. We get to live eternally in the kingdom and the presence of God with this never-ending peace under a never-ending, perfect, unstoppable government and king. Because this king upholds everything. Hebrews tells us he upholds the very universe by the word of his power. And so he upholds this kingdom with justice and righteousness. And God, he's the one behind it. Psalm 145, 11 through 13 says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. Tell of your power. This is the psalmist declaring God's praise. And it says, they'll, they'll speak of the glory of your kingdom. They'll tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. So part of this kingdom being unstoppable and eternal means this. There's power, unspeakable power that this king has. There's glory, and this glorious splendor is actually shared to the children of man. People proclaim how glorious this kingdom is. And they share that with people. And other people come to see how beautiful and majestic God's kingdom is. It's starting to give you an idea of what evangelism ought to look like. It's just me worshiping God on a daily basis and other people getting caught up 
in the worship and praise that I'm in, engaging in with God and going, he's so wonderful. His kingdom is so glorious. You guys want to see? And it's not this awkward, you know, sales pitch where you go, there's a kingdom. Uh, do you want to die in your sins? Like, it just changes the way you approach evangelism evangelism and preaching the gospel when you realize, oh, I ought to be excited about what I'm sharing. Yeah, you ought to be. It's wonderful news. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. So this kingdom, that's why Jesus says, my, my kingdom's not of this world because God rules from the heavens. And that's why this heavenly kingdom is going to come down and take over all the human kingdoms that are just in a mess. It's chaos. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, it says, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. Not achieving a kingdom. Not climbing your way into a kingdom. You just received it in faith. That's how it's framed up. We have received a kingdom through faith that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I want you to think about how the kingdom can't be shaken. His kingdom is unshakable. And it's also connected to the fact that he's a consuming fire. Not just consuming the offerings that we bring and the sacrifices of our praise and worship. And that's being consumed as a fragrant offering to him. But also... The kingdom we're a part of, the kingdom of priests, when we bring our worship and praise and our offerings to God, this kingdom we're a part of, because he's the consuming fire, it mows down everything in its path that doesn't actually uh, have loyalty to the king. And when you talk about our redemption, you ultimately, inevitably have to talk about the destruction of the wicked. Because part of our redemption involves the destruction of God's enemies. So salvation for one group means destruction for another. So us being a part of this beautiful kingdom means those who are not a part of it and want no part of God as their king, want no part of his kingdom. They do get mowed down. They were given the opportunities, the invitations. They were told the gospel just as much. But not everyone wants it. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. This is uh, what Elizabeth... No, this is what Gabriel, the angel messenger, tells Mary. He's talking about Jesus. He says, he will be great. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And I know by now you're going, okay, I get it. His kingdom has no end. This is like the most exciting news on the planet, though. It's one thing to be saved and righteous and holy and, and blameless, have a relationship with God. It's another thing to say, all those things will never end. You, your relationship with God, the beautiful friendship you have with him, you being a citizen of his kingdom, you being in his family, you having all the blessings Christ has made available, you being, a, all this stuff, it'll never end. And you go, why? Because God has just set it up that way. That what is a part of his eternal kingdom also carries that same attribute of eternality. His word, his people, the blessings, the new creation. Jesus reigns forever. Jesus reigns forever. Here we see in the, the first king in the history of Israel that will never get knocked off his throne that will never forfeit his throne, that will never lose the rights to his throne because he reigns forever. And it's, there's a guarantee. You can't say that about any other king. Well, the line of David, that's different because Jesus continues that. So when we talk about God's kingdom being eternal, never-ending, unstoppable, it's already, but it's not yet. You know, the question becomes, so how do we respond? What, what do we do? Is there anything, is there any call to action? There is. There's actually a call to search for and expect God's kingdom. To long for his kingdom, to seek for his kingdom, to say, let your kingdom come today through me. But also I'm praying that your kingdom would come fully realized on the new earth in my lifetime. Luke 23, 51. 
And we see this sentiment in Revelation 22, where John says, Come, Lord Jesus. That should be the heart cry of his people daily. Is, oh, let your kingdom come through me today, but I am expecting you to come back today as well. Luke 23, 51, there was a man named Joseph. Not Jesus' physical earthly daddy, um, but a different Joseph from Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their decision to kill Jesus, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. That's the idea we see in Matthew 6, 10, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. There's an expectation in this man, Joseph. Because he's looking for the kingdom of God properly, mind you, and there was a wrong way to do it. Because he's looking for the kingdom of God properly, he recognizes Jesus for who he really is. He sees Jesus as the true king that comes from the line of David to rule really over the entire universe, not just Israel. And though Joseph might not understand all of that in this moment in time, I'm sure eventually it does start to click for him. But let's go to Matthew 6, 33. This is what Jesus says. And you hear this verse a lot. Everyone has this tattooed on their back or on a coffee mug so they can look at it every morning and go, yep, I'm going to seek first the kingdom. But that's such a vague idea if you don't put practical legs on it. When I tell you seek first the kingdom, you, you might have an idea of what that looks like. Okay, to seek means to look for, to search out, to ex- you're really expecting to find something, right? So how do I search for the kingdom of God daily? How do I s- seek it out? Well, it involves seeking for his righteousness. And then Jesus says, as a result of that, all these things will be added to you. All the things God knows you need, God will sustain you through. And God will give you to effectively do what he's called you to. He'll give that to you. Your job, my job, is just to seek first the kingdom of God. And notice this word first. It means prioritize God's kingdom, God's word, God's gospel, God's character, God's ways. Prioritize God's kingdom above everything else. And you go, easier said than done. What that really means is in everything I do, in all my decisions, in all my interactions, I am trying my best on a daily moment-to-moment basis to prioritize God's kingdom in what I'm doing, in the way that I'm responding to my wife, in the way that I'm out there mowing the lawn and doing yard work, in the way that I'm you know, reorganizing the house or going out to get groceries or driving, in everything, in the way I handle my finances, in the way that I you know, make content or make songs in everything. I want his kingdom to be central, the central motivating factor in all that I do. I want it to be the kingdom of God, his presence, his ways, his character, his word. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom. It's not just chronologically. When I start my day, the first thing I do is pray. And then the rest of the day, I do nothing about my relationship with God. Because I sought his kingdom first. I put him first. No, you just got him out of the way. So you could say you, you did what you needed to do. And then you got on with your day without even considering what he wanted you to do throughout everything else. That's typically how a lot of people understand seeking first the kingdom. They go, well, as long as I give God the first portion of my day, which I highly recommend. I highly recommend that. Giving God the first portion of your day is the best thing you can do. But that's not it. It's not all there is. Well, I gave you the first 10 minutes of my day, so now the rest of my day has nothing to do with you. And some people kind of just do that. They get God, I just got to get my time with God out of the way so I can say I did it and I can have a pat myself on the back and hopefully get a a gold star from God today. I just want to get it out of the way so I can move on. It's like, is that what it means to seek first the kingdom? Or is there something we're missing? Jesus will spend most of the Sermon on the Mount giving you practical ways to seek first his kingdom. But there is no seeking first his kingdom without firstly really seeking for the righteousness he makes available through Jesus. My ability to seek first the kingdom on a daily basis as a citizen, that starts with me seeking for the righteousness God gives through faith. 
So you might say, well, that is a way to seek first the kingdom. Fine. You can seek for, as an unbeliever, I can hear the gospel. And when I respond in faith and receive and believe in the work that Christ has done for me, in that sense, I have begun to seek the kingdom. But now on a daily basis that I have the righteousness of God, now I can really start to seek his kingdom in my family endeavors, in our finances, in our vacation time, in our, you know, whatever. I mean, think about everything that goes on throughout your day. How can God be central in that? How can God be the focus and the motivating force behind what you're doing on a moment-to-moment basis? Work, video games, music, YouTube, scrolling through TikTok. I mean, the list, think about all the stuff you and I do. Interacting with my children, talking to my wife, surfing the internet, going outside for a walk, working out at the gym. The list goes on and on. How can God be central in that? There's a call on us to not just say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, but to actually like move in that direction. It's one thing to pray for something. It's another thing to pray for something that you're actually moving towards. Matthew 13, 45 and 46. I've come to understand this parable. Uh, for most of my Christian life, I used, I used to think it was about us searching for the kingdom of heaven. Now, while that might be a sub-point, I'm, I'm convinced now that the main idea in this little parable is that it's Jesus who came down to seek for and really purchase with his own life the kingdom of God for his people. It says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. In other words, this person is going after something valuable. Who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. But it came at a cost to him. I mean, think about all the passages in scripture where Jesus is said to be seeking his people, seeking the sheep, searching for the the one. Luke's gospel comes to mind where you have the the woman with 10 coins lost one or the you know the shepherd with 99 100 sheep and one goes missing or the parable of the prodigal son two sons father has one is lost ends up coming back it's the idea of the kingdom of heaven this isn't something that i only get by sacrificing enough and selling cuz nothing i could give up is actually worth the value of the kingdom but what Jesus gives up and what he sells in order to, which is really him giving up his life that that is of more value even than the kingdom he purchases for us being his people and being our access but either way there's a, there's a seeking for it isn't there even on the part of God come down into our world Jesus the eternal word made flesh even Jesus shows us Seeking for the kingdom, going after that, even if it means losing something in the process, it's worth it. I mean, that's crazy. It's crazy. Revelation twenty two twenty. this is the last passage. This is how John ends this beautiful revelation. Uh, he who testifies to these things says... That being Jesus, surely I am coming soon. Surely I'm coming soon. I want you to think about that. When is the last time that you really, really, um, like deep down, you were convinced in this moment, he really could come back? It's not just that you knew it as a fact, what the Bible tells me, but there was something resonating within you that said, I really am convinced he could come back right now. And I long for that. When's the last time that happened? I'm not saying we measure our faithfulness by how often we have that experience. I'm, I'm just saying that that is a, that is a real um, desire, a real passion, a real excitement we should have. And we should live a life in such a way that cultivates that that passion and excitement and anticipation. 
We should, we should be strategically living our life in such a way where we're putting ourselves around things and arranging our life in, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, in such a way where we are constantly reminded that he is coming and I want to be expecting it. And notice the response of John and really all the people of God to Jesus saying, I'm coming soon. He says, come Lord Jesus. If there could be a hundred exclamation points, I'm sure there would be. Come Lord Jesus. It's the cry of his heart. And it should be the cry of ours because with him comes the establishment of his kingdom. We're longing for Jesus to return and fully realize, fully manifest the kingdom of God in new creation. We're longing for that. We're longing for all the human empires and kingdoms with wicked rulers to just be absolutely overthrown by his kingdom. We're longing for that. We're longing for Satan to be removed from the world and all darkness and all evil and all sin and all the wicked. We're longing for God's presence to be fully, fully perfectly manifest in the world with us as resurrected glorified saints we're longing for that if you are not content with the way the world is good look to jesus not some political figure if you are content with the way the world is things are gonna have to change for you because that ain't how believers ought to live now you go well we should be content in christ oh i'm content in christ but that doesn't mean i'm okay with the way the world is he's enough but he's going to change some things he is so that is how we'll end this series in some official way on the kingdom of god now friday I encourage you guys to be there, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be live going through every parable together, breaking it down, relating it to the kingdom. And I I think there will be a lot of misunderstandings exposed and a lot of things that you might not have known before. And I think there will be a lot of clarity. A lot of understanding will come. Hey, thanks for listening to today's message. I need your help. Would you rate this podcast and give it an honest review to let others know what they can expect from this podcast? It would really help us in reaching more people with the truth of God's word. And be sure to check out AboveReproachMinistry.com for all of our free resources like trainings, Bible courses, worksheets, our online church, and much more. Thanks again for listening to this podcast and leaving a good review for others.